Good morning, all. Good to see you guys. If I have not had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Mark Ashbaugh. I'm campus minister with RUF at Winthrop and to York Tech, your local college students. Let me put on my RUF hat very briefly. One, thank you all. Extremely grateful for this church and individuals who, who pray for us and support us. So we cannot do this ministry on our own. On our own. And so, first and foremost, thankful. Thankful for y'all, grateful for y'all. Appreciate you greatly. And as a new university and school year begins, let me make a plea to you. If you are a rising freshman or if you know rising freshmen, please, I would love to get in touch with them. Even if they're not going to Winthrop York Tech, I would love to connect them with, I'd love to connect you with a local campus ministry, with RUF, with a local church. Every single person in this here, in this here, in this room, we're off to a good start, 100% of you, most likely, if I said, were you involved with the campus ministry? And if the answer is yes, most likely they're going to say I was thankful for it. And if they were not involved in a campus ministry, most likely they'll say I wish I had. And so, rising freshmen, let me encourage you, even though I'm an old man and you probably won't listen to me, I encourage you. Reach out to a campus ministry, reach out to a local church. It will impact your years in college greatly. And if you want to grow in Christ, you have to be connected to a group of believers, whether that's through campus ministry or through a local church. Please reach out to me. Email is mark.ashbaugh at ruf.org. Last name's weird, but it's in the bulletin, and you can figure that out. So I'm grateful y'all are here. We're preaching from, I'm preaching from perhaps a familiar passage for many of you. If you grew up in the church, you've probably heard this or memorized this, but there's a really great context in this passage. So if you have your Bibles, you got your phones, flip open to Philippians chapter 4, the end of Paul's letter to the Philippian church, the Apostle Paul, beginning in chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. This is God's word for each and every one of us this morning. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syndicate to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, tree companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We have learned and received and heard and seen me practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, we once again come before you. We're grateful for you, Lord. We're grateful for your kindness. We're grateful for your mercy. We're grateful for your love. Lord, we're grateful to be able to come together, and Lord, we pray that your spirit would come upon us this morning. Lord, as we know, there are people here with a myriad of emotions and feelings and circumstances and situations, Father, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon us. Whether we are here with great joy and great gladness, whether we are here with great sorrow and sadness, or if we are here in stress and anxiety, Lord, we pray 
that you'd open the eyes of our hearts to behold wonderful things of your law, that you would enlarge our hearts, that we would be able to run after you this morning and the rest of our lives. And if there are those here this morning who do not know you, Lord, would you stir their hearts? Would you draw them near to you for the very first time? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So if you are a 70s commercial person, which you probably aren't, or if you happen to watch Madman, you would know the end of the series begins or ends with Don Draper, and he's an ad executive out of New York, and he the, fictionally comes up with the Coca-Cola Hilltop commercial. If you've seen this commercial, it's in the early 70s. It's a bunch of people of all different races and backgrounds and sizes and shapes, and, and they're singing on the top of the hill. And for your sake, I will not sing to you. Thank you. But I will give you the words. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. That's the real thing. What the world wants today is the real thing. What the world wants today is the real thing. And like every good commercial, like every good advertisement, what's the implication? That joy, harmony, peace will come in this product. And here, Coca-Cola will bring you harmony. It will bring you company. And it will bring you harmony and company for a little bit, unless you're a Pepsi person. Coke is amazing. <laughs> but ultimately, you know it's not the real thing. It's not the real deal. And I think we all long for the real thing. We don't want cheap imitations. And when we think of this passage, we think of peace. We want the real thing. We long for peace. We live, I don't think I need to explain to you that we live in a stressed out and anxious society. These stats are eight years old, and they have to have gone up in the last eight years, especially in the last year and a half. But according to millennials... 52% of y'all are stressed about money, work, relationships. One in five of you are clinically depressed. And my guess is those numbers have gone up. If you've read the book Margins, this is over 15 years old, he says that over 225 million workdays are lost every year out of stress. That's a million people not working every day because they're stressed out. I don't think I need to explain to you as you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I know, Mark, I'm a stressed an anxious person. But how do we go about getting peace? There are many solutions. Maybe it is Coca-Cola for a moment. For Matthew Cray, who is up here, who's a Kung Fu Panda fan, I know. If you've not seen Kung Fu Panda, Kung Fu Panda, Panda is about a panda named Poe. And in the second movie, his goal is to find inner peace. And his master Shifu is sitting quietly humming inner peace to himself. Inner peace, inner peace. Now, most of you probably don't think that's the way to get inner peace, but I imagine many of you are thinking, if I can just have stillness and quiet, then my heart will be at peace. Or maybe it's getting the next thing. If I can just reach my sales goal, if I can just get this next house, if my child can get into this college, if this semester ends, if this summer is over, if 2020 finally ever ends, and it did, and guess what? We're still stressed and anxious. If this person will just act this way or do this thing, then will I be at peace? If God, the Lord, will just do this thing or make me feel this one way or take this sin struggle away from me, then I will be at peace. 
Well, fortunately, by the grace of God, the Word of God gives us tools to have the peace of God in our hearts. Paul gives us encouragement in the end of Philippians. He tells us that the peace of God in our hearts, in this passage in particular, a few tools for our belt, if you will, is the peace of God is dependent upon our public relationships. The peace of God in our hearts is dependent upon our personal piety or our godliness or our holiness. And the peace of God in our hearts is dependent upon our purposeful thinking, if you will, our pondering rightly. Peace of God is dependent on our public relationships, our personal piety, and our purposeful thinking. So let's begin with our public relationships. What do we mean by that? What, why is the peace of God in our hearts dependent upon our public relationships? What's the context here of Philippians 4, 2 through 9? We see this in the beginning of verse 2. We learn of four main characters. We have Euodia, we have Syndike, we have Clement, and we've got the co-laborer who, is, who remains nameless. And something is going on between these two women, Euodia and Syndike. We don't know the disagreement. We don't know what is happening. But we do know that Paul, if you look at verse 1, Paul loves these sisters dearly. He calls them my crown and my joy. He loves them. He enjoys them. He labored side by side with them. They ministered the gospel together. They brought the grace and the love of Jesus to others. And yet Paul says in verse 2, he calls them to agree in the Lord, so there must be some kind of disagreement. Again, we don't know what the disagreement is. It's most likely not a theological disagreement. In Paul's letters, if there's a theological disagreement, if, if someone says, you need to know Jesus plus these things, Paul does not mince words. He, in his grace and his love and courage and boldness, says the gospel is about Jesus and Jesus alone, period. And so if there's that disagreement, Paul is not messing around, but we don't see Paul doing that here. So most likely to some kind of philosophical disagreement, a philosophy of ministry disagreement, your church, this church, every church, whether they know it or not, have some kind of philosophy of ministry, the way that they, they view how they should do ministry, the way that they should love the people in their church, the way they should love their community, the way that they love the Lord and the world. Everyone has a philosophy ministry. RUF has a philosophy ministry. Occasionally a student will say to me, uh, why are there multiple campus ministries? Many of the campus ministries in RUF believe the almost exact same things and yet we believe different ways of doing ministry. We're not saying theirs is wrong, we just think this is the way that we should do ministry. And so there's some kind of disagreement between Yodia and Syndike. And so what is the implication for us today? One, Paul takes this disagreement seriously. He doesn't sweep it under the rug, he doesn't push it to the side, this disagreement has boiled over into the public sphere so much so that Paul has heard about it and he is addressing it publicly in this letter to the Philippian church. Because if we don't take disagreement seriously, what could happen? Resentment, bitterness, anger, cynicism. Short, not peace, stress, anxiety. If we allow disagreements to continue on, it will lead to the opposite of peace. And so Paul gives us encouragement here. Paul reminds us, which I think many of us forget to do, is Paul reminds us of the indicatives. 
For those of you who are English or grammar people out there, the indicatives are, are the truths of what we believe. It's the doctrine. Paul's letters are often framed this way. Romans is 16 chapters long, and for 11 chapters, he tells us who God is and who we are in Jesus Christ. And then he gets to what we're called to do. Ephesians, six chapters long, the first three chapters, who Jesus is and who we are and what that means, and then live this way. And the same is true in Philippians, two chapters, who God is, who we are in Jesus, and therefore live this way. And even when he's telling us how to live, he's reminding us of the indicatives. He's reminding us of who we are in Jesus because it's very easy to forget who we are in Jesus. And Paul tells us, the Lord tells us, Euodia and Syndicate, you have disagreements. You disagree with one another. You're not getting along. But guess what? Both of your names are in the book of life. That person over there that you have disagreements with, that church that you're not getting along with, their church leaders that you disagree with, do you view them and look at them and say, you know what? If I'm willing to take a step back, am I willing to say that person knows the Lord? That person is on the same team. That person is my brother and sister in Christ. Are you willing to look at them and say, you know what? Even though we disagree, Ultimately, that person is for me. Or do you look at them and say they're against me? They're not with me. They're on a different team than I am. Are you willing to look at yourself as someone with their name in the book of life? Have you put your hope in Jesus? Have you put your hope in the Lord? If you were here last week, or if you've heard the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's one of Jesus' parables. And the way that we want to view the Christian life is it's so easy to lean into, if I do enough things, if I'm religious enough, if I show up in enough things, if I give my money away, if I'm this type of person, then I'm justified before the Lord. And Jesus tells us very honestly, the person who is justified with their name in the book of life is the one who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, period, full stop. That's it. That's the Christian life. That's who we are in Christ. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus, in his grace and his kindness, has forgiven us and has put our names in permanent marker in the book of life, never to be erased. With the Olympics coming up, I'm a sucker for the Olympics. I'll watch as much sporting events in the next two weeks as I can about things that I could not care less about for three years and 350 days. But for those 14 days, I am all in. So if you happen to read Boys in the Boat, it's about a 1936 U.S. Olympic men's rowing team. I think I can safely say with all forgiveness and grace to those who enjoy rowing. I've never watched a rowing match. But if you read Boys in the Boat, Boys in the Boat makes it seem like eight-man Olympic rowing is the most interesting and fascinating sport of all time. Why? Because for 2,000 meters, eight men or women have to row in perfect synchronization. 
Every row enters the water at the exact same time. Every row comes out of the water at the exact same time. If you row offbeat, if one person gets tired, if one person rows quicker than another, you will not win. Eight people listening to the coxswain doing exactly what he tells them to do. And so every person in that boat has to look at the person behind them and know about the person behind you and trust them implicitly and to not be cheesy that they're all for the same goal, doing the exact same thing striving for victory. Can you look at your brother and sister in Christ and say, my brother, my sister, their name is written in the book of life and we are in the same boat. Now, Paul is aware of us. 2,000 years ago, this book is still relevant to us today because Paul recognizes It's not easy to do, is it? It's hard to do. Sometimes you can know implicitly and explicitly that that person, sorry to point over here, that that person knows and loves Jesus and yet you are in complete and utter disagreement with them. And so what does Paul say to you and to I? Get help. Your peace, the peace of God in your heart, and we don't like to say this, we've got it figured out. I can do this on my own. If I work hard, if I think hard, and if I do enough hard things, I will figure out this relationship. And sometimes it doesn't work, and Paul says, get help. Paul calls out to the entire Philippian church as they are hearing this letter written out loud publicly, Yodi and Syneche, you cannot figure it out. Please, Clement and my true companion are here to come alongside you and help you. Get help. Get help. Find somebody who knows you and that other person and ask them to come alongside you. It's not easy to do. And are you willing to be the person to give help also? The person comes to you and says, will you come alongside us? Will you help us work through our disagreements? Are you willing to say, yes, I'm willing to come alongside you? The peace of God in your hearts is dependent upon you asking for help and giving help. And Paul continues on. The peace of God in your heart is dependent upon your personal piety, your personal godliness, your personal holiness. He moves on to verse 4. He says, rejoice. He says it a second time, rejoice. Why? We forget. We forget. We forget. We sang, is he worthy? Because we have to remember. We have to remember who God is and who we are in Christ because we are so quick to forget because circumstances and situations and relationships are hard and stressful and anxious. And so Jesus says, would you take a step back and remember who you are in Christ and rejoice. The song we sang with all sorts of grace to act, act, say it again, act, Act justly, walk humbly. It's a passage in the Bible. I don't got it. You can't sing that song first. And we didn't. Because it would crush you. Because you can't do it. And so you got to remember the indicatives first. Who you are in Jesus. And then we can sing that song, which we did. Then we can sing it. Because we remembered first and foremost. And so Paul is saying to us, the Lord is saying to us, remember who you are in Christ and rejoice. Rejoice. It's easy to forget 
Because if we don't rejoice, if we don't take a step back, then we become a pressure cooker. We become a slow cooker. We become something stewing in our own sin and, and stress and anxiety. And so Paul is saying, take a step back, and as the Avid brothers say, tell the truth to yourself, and the rest will fall into place. Tell the truth to yourself. If you're in Jesus, tell the truth to yourself and rejoice. And then Paul continues on. He says, the peace of God in your life is dependent upon being reasonable. The NIV translated gentle. We won't spend much time there because I think we all get that. We live in a rough and ungentle and unreasonable culture. And one of the greatest moments for peace in your life and as a witness to the world is if we are people recognizing that Jesus was first gentle and reasonable with us, therefore we can be reasonable and gentle with others. It's not easy to do that. But are we willing to, to dwell on? the reasonableness and the gentleness of Christ in our lives and move towards others in that as well. Our peace is dependent upon it. Verse five, the Lord is at hand. We can get a couple meanings from this. One, the Lord will return again. Again, I don't need to convince you that we lived in a stressed and anxious and tiresome and toilsome and difficult world with many tears with many insecurities, with struggles with sin, struggles with money, struggles with anxiety, struggles with body issues, body security, right? We, we, we live in that type of world, injustice. We live there. And so Jesus is reminding you and I, one day when Jesus returns, all of that will be gone. All of it, no more tears. No more death, no more illness, no more difficult relationships, no more struggling over money, no more struggling over sin, no more insecurity, no more stress. Just when Jesus returns, peace. And it's easy to forget that in the midst of difficult relationships, in the midst of difficult circumstances. It's easy to forget that one day that'll all be gone. One day it'll all be gone. The other way we can look at that is the Lord is at hand, is he is Emmanuel. He's Jesus with you. He's Jesus who will never leave you. He's Jesus who will never forsake you. He's Jesus who will never, ever walk away from you. The Father gave you the Son. He's never taken him away from you. And so when you, when I, when we think I'm the only one who's going through what I'm going through, Jesus is with you in it. Jesus is with you in it. And that's when we move to verses 6 and 7. Remembering the indicatives. Remembering who we are in Jesus. Remembering that we can rejoice. Remembering that Jesus was gentle and reasonable with us. Remembering that one day it will all be gone. Remembering that Jesus is with us. Therefore, the Lord says, come to me with everything. Everything. Nothing is too insignificant. Nothing is too big. Nothing is unimportant. Jesus says, bring it all. I want it all. I want to hear about everything. There's not a thing that you are going through, a situation, a circumstance, a thought, a relationship, that he doesn't want. He wants it all. But he does remind us, rightfully so, because if we bring it all, bitter and angry, and we should bring it with bitter and angry and resentful hearts. But the Lord also says, take a step back. 
and be thankful. Any Berenstein Bears fans out there? I feel like it's held the test of time. It was in Chick-fil-A for a little bit. Berenstein Bears, count your blessings. Brother Bear is envious of his cousin Freddy's Bear Boy game system. Bear Boy, my cousin Freddy's got it all. Sister Bear is jealous of her friend's Bearby collection. She's got wedding doll Bearby. She's got astronaut Bearby. I can't, Astra Bear Bearby, I don't know. And Mama Bear and Papa Bear, with all seriousness, and to you and I, count your blessings. Can you be thankful? Even the hard, painful, terrible situation that you're in, the circumstances you're going through, the relationship, work, school, can you take a step back and are there things you can be thankful for? And we can. The Lord always provides everything that we need. And that's not just material, but he provides everything that we need. So take a step back and be thankful. If we fail to be thankful, it'll lead to more cynicism, more anxiety, and more stress. The peace of God is dependent upon our public relationship. It's dependent upon our personal piety, and it's dependent upon our purposeful thinking. Verse 8, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What's Paul and the Word of God reminding us? Well, what about the opposite? What if we dwell on the opposite things? If we dwell on whatever is false, dishonorable, unjust, impure, not lovely, not excellent, essentially, all it's not peaceful. It's not good for our hearts. It's not good for our souls. Think about what you consume. In our pockets is access to pretty much everything. And that is a great thing and a horrible thing. And we can use this wonderful gift of technology to consume things that just wreck our souls, that can mess with our hearts, that can mess with our minds. We can allow the thing in our pocket and our minds to begin to stew and to boil over into a putrid mess. And that's very graphic. I apologize. And so Paul is encouraging you and I that the peace of God in our hearts is dependent upon what you fill your hearts and your minds with, what you fill and allow through your eyes. There's a lot of good stuff out there that we can consume well, and we should. I'm not saying hide in a corner over there, and you might need to throw your cell phone away. You can get a flip phone, hoping they'll make it come back. So how do we ponder correctly? Because there is a lot out there. And so Paul encourages us in verse 9, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Paul is not the word of God. But Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has given us his word. And so Paul is essentially saying, do you know the word of God? Do you dwell on it? Do you think about it? Do you memorize it? Do you listen to it when you're mowing the lawn? Do you listen to it when you're working out? Do you listen to it when you're doing the dishes? Do you listen to it on your commutes? Allow the word of God to consume your hearts and your minds. How do federal agents spout... Spot counterfeit dollars. 
they intimately know the real thing. If you are a doctor and you know that is something wrong with the body, it's because you intimately know how the body is supposed to correctly work. If you are a computer programmer and there's something wrong with your program, a virus is attacking it, you know how your program works so intimately that you know how to counterattack that virus that is infiltrating your program. Know the Word of God. Know the Word of God. Allow the Word of God to be the lens in which you view and see the world. 2015, a Mount Everest climber named Jim Davidson was climbing Mount Everest. Someday I'd like to meet an Everest climber. If you are one, I'd love to hear from you. I don't ever want to do it. I'd just like to hear your story. But in order to get to Mount Everest from the Nepalese side, you have to go through a glacier. And the glacier is moving two to three feet every day. It is constantly shifting. It's constantly moving. What was once a crevice is now nothing. What was once a short crack is now a huge crack. And so Sherpas, at the beginning of the climbing season, they go through that ice fall, that glacier, and they put out ladders, and they put out ropes, and they put on uh, clampons and grip-ons so that you can try to safely meander through that pretty terrifying glacier to even begin to climb the mountain. And so Jim Davidson is, is, is beginning to go through that icefall, that, that glacier, and he's on a, a rickety ladder that feels like he keeps looking down, and he's got this flashback to when he's a 14-year-old boy. And his dad and his uncle owned a painting business. And so as the 14-year-old is the smallest between the dad and the uncle, they looked at the giant steeple, and they looked at the 72-foot ladder, and they said, all right, 14-year-old son, you're going up which is slightly terrifying, just even thinking about. And so as this 14-year-old is seven feet away from the top and the ladder is getting real rickety and moving, he's looking down and he says, you can imagine, getting pretty scared. And so his father yells from below, hey, listen. And the son says, Jim Davidson says, it was absolute clarity. His father says to him, focus on the climb, not the fall. Focus on the Word of God. There's a lot going on, and you should pay attention to what's going on, and you should care about what's going on. But the lens in which you view the world and the way that you view relationships and the way that you view your circumstances and the way that you view your situation, are you viewing it through the Word of God? Because the peace of God in your hearts is dependent upon that. So these are some tools the Lord gives us. The Lord gives us tools in our difficulties with relationships to ask for help. It's not easy. To give help, to strive for godliness and piety and holiness by, by dwelling and remembering who you are in Jesus and to begin to view and to continue to view the world through the lens of Scripture. But the hard and difficult thing is the Lord doesn't promise peace in this world. He doesn't. In John 16, the Lord says, I've said these things to you that in me you have made peace. In the world you have tribulation, or in the NIV, troubles, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The Lord has given you these tools to strive for peace in your relationships, in your own heart, in your mind, with others. But ultimately, y'all, peace comes from the Prince of Peace. Putting your hope and your trust in Jesus knowing that even though you don't have peace in this world, one day, one day, you will see Jesus face to face and you will have peace. You all pray with me?
Father, we thank you again for your grace and your mercy and your word. And Lord, we pray for those who are struggling with resting in you, with remembering the indicatives, remembering who they are in Christ, remembering who you are. Those who are wrestling and struggling with sin and relationships and disagreements, Father, we pray that you would give your spirit to them to strive to see the peace of God in their hearts and to remember that ultimately one day they will have peace. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.